Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. Money is changing fast. To understand what's going on, we need to look at the big picture. That means talking to the experts from a lot of different fields, not just from finance, economics and technology, but also from science, history and culture. Each week, the New Money Review podcast brings you a half-hour interview with outstanding thinkers in all these areas. David, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Right. My name's David Gerard. I am a cryptocurrency and blockchain journalist. I have a day job as a sysadmin, but I have this second job as a writer. Um, I wrote a book about Bitcoin and blockchain called Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain in 2017, which came out just in time for the Bitcoin bubble. So that got a bit of attention. Nice timing. Um, Since then, I've done much more writing on the subject. I write a regular blog on the subject. Um, write for other publications and so on. And I decided it was time to do another book. So last year, there were two stories in cryptocurrency. One was Quadriga Exchange in Canada collapsing, and the other was Facebook doing a coin called Libra. So I decided, oh, that'll be an interesting tale. So here we are. Okay, great. Well, thank you for uh, mentioning both those books. I've read both of them, and I, I can... Thoroughly recommend them to anyone listening. They're both they're both uh, entertaining reads, and also I found them really uh, useful reference works. Particularly, your cryptocurrency book has a lot of the back histories of some of the people and entities involved in cryptocurrency. And it's uh, if you have if you're tempted to look at the uh, area of that of the market with rose tinted spectacles, as I guess we all are sometimes. Maybe not you, David, but uh, I, I can be prone to do so. Uh, it's a useful. Kind of a bucket of cold water on on the on the head, as it were, to uh, to remind us all of uh, where some of these things came from. But um, let me let me start by asking you about um, uh, your your views on cryptocurrency before we turn to Libra. I mean, you've described uh, Bitcoin in let's say not very complimentary ways. You've 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 said it's uh, it's a trustless system um, or a trustless system like Bitcoin attracts the sort of people who just can't be trusted. Is that still your view? Are you still very much a skeptic on, on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? Very much. I, I've been watching it more or less for years, and it's never really shown a use case except it attracts naive people who don't understand anything about how money works and will believe whatever they think will make number go up and make them get rich for free. And it attracts scammers to prey upon them. Like, there's so many scams in cryptocurrency. And you keep finding these people are serial scammers. Like, have previous convictions for mail fraud or whatever. And now they've decided, oh, here's a fresh realm of new suckers. So, you know, that's quite bad. I mean, the moral core of my first book was, this is bad for retail. Mum and dads are going to get skinned. Don't go near it. Then it turned out my actual readers were business and finance people who know perfectly well that zero is a number, you know, um, and that investments can go to zero. Once you're at that stage, then you can go, yeah, okay, we can talk about this in detail because it is fascinating stuff. It's like really interesting. Um, it's, uh, but it's very, very risky. Um, so your, 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 main, your main concern is that people who are naive and trusting are going to get sucked into this and scammed. Yep, and that's exactly what happened in the 2017 bubble. But what about the the technology itself, the the the, the trustless system, the you know the blockchain, which has been going now for for nearly 12 years and has, has you know has, has operated pretty much without uh, without flaws. Uh, it, you know, is that in itself not something 
uh, valuable to its users. So Bitcoin doesn't work as money and it's full of scams. But on the other hand, the blockchain is also useless and doesn't actually do anything good. I'd strongly question the claim that it's worked without flaws. I think it's worked entirely on flaws and has kept going anyway, driven mostly by the urge of people to watch their number go up. Um, it doesn't do a, a um, permissionless system the way that Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies work. Um, basically, it wastes a vast country-sized amount of electricity to try to stay decentralized and keep it out of all central control. And that didn't work anyway because Bitcoin had completely re-centralized by about 2014. Um, they had the uh, doomsday apocalypse scenario of Bitcoin, the 51% um, was attained by July 2014. And by 2015, you had 90% of the men who controlled 90% of Bitcoin mining could all stand on the same stage together. Right. Um, Are you suggesting those people still control the network? They literally know each other and talk to each other and talk about things like how Bitcoin is going to go and what their position is as a group of miners. So I have trouble thinking of this as a meaningfully decentralized system. Mostly it's decentralized in the sense of the word de saying the word decentralized to try to um, evade legal responsibility and as touchable entities that functionally control the system. Okay. Well, when you wrote in your uh, 2017 book that Bitcoin, I'm, I'm quoting from the book, Bitcoin was the cardboard and string proof of concept for the idea of cryptocurrency that was then pressed into production use. It's amazing it held up in real use as long as it did. Well, we're now three and a half years later. It's still there. It's still going. The price has gone up. The number's gone up, as you put it. Um, you know, have you had any cause to revise those views or do you think you were just early in making that prediction? Um, it's stumbling forth wasting a country's worth of electricity for a um, thinly traded commodity in zero-sum markets with the regulators basically absent and it's massively manipulated. And I mean, I would not say that I, it's failed in literally every aspiration that its creator had for it. Uh, you know, it's not electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash. You can't do microtransactions. It's thoroughly centralized in practice. Um, you can convince people to buy it from you, maybe. Um, at that point, you just have a zero-sum trading environment. And, you know, that's fine if that's the game you know you're in. But when you when you call Bitcoin an apocalyptic death cult, which is a, a, a great phrase, um, I, I, you know, I, it made me think about um, money. And, and then I thought, well, hang on a second. Aren't all monies uh, at, at some level a cult? Because, we, you know, national money in a sense is the cult of the nation state. If you go back in time, money uh, at the beginnings of, um, of money, you know, in, ba in ancient Babylon, it was run by the the priests of the temple, they were the, they were in charge of uh, keeping track of the money. I mean, it, it hasn't money always been a, a cult of one kind or another? So, you know, on that basis, maybe Bitcoin is not that unusual. Um, this is an argument from equivocation and personal ignorance that Bitcoiners are quite fond of. They, um, th I've noticed this line recently when you say, look, Bitcoin fa is functionally a scam. They don't even deny it anymore. They just say, ah, but isn't this normal investment, they name one, isn't that also a scam? Well, only if you sort of galaxy brain to the point where you no, say I'm saying that a scam. Literally... I'm talking about a, a, a cult. I mean, I, I interviewed um, Lana Swartz a, a couple of months ago, and she has written a book on on um, money and social media. And she spends a lot of time in her book talking about 
you know, the, the, the symbolism on banknotes and how it's very much tied into the idea of the nation state that developed in the 19th century. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just, that, that's the, the argument that's tied to this kind of um, uh, almost like a religious belief or a, a belief system at least. Uh, and so oh, sure. in that sense, maybe, so maybe, so maybe Bitcoin in, in that sense is not that unusual. Um, it's that I'm failing to see how that's a useful comparison that addresses anything I've said though. Well, that it might, you know, it, it, the fact that it's a cult may not necessarily doom it to, um, you know, extinction. Or it might, it might not run out of. It could, you know, strange things can happen with. Uh, so you know, the, the past people have, have used cult, rock. Yeah, the apocalyptic death cult comparison was specifically the apocalyptic death bit is the real problem there. The bit we have literally a country's worth of electricity being spent to sustain the the most inefficient payment network in human history. Um, this is a significant externality. Um, now, you could say, well, it's their money, they can spend it how they like, and that's what we're doing in practice. But the externalities still exist, and they're a problem. And then you have Bitcoin say, oh, this is good, we, could, we should go to more elect- money being spent on Bitcoin, that would be even better. No, it, no, it wouldn't. You know, it, it's ridiculous. But what, that's a real. I mean, I'm interested to ask you about externalities. Isn't that? I mean, I've always uh, considered that perhaps one of the strengths of Bitcoin is the fact that it makes this cost of running the system explicit. You know exactly what the, um, you know, how much power is being used to support the network because you can see the the hash uh, rate on the on the internet. You can work out what the assumed electricity cost is. That's the cost of running the system. It may, you may not like the fact that that's what it costs and that it consumes the same amount of power as uh, you know a middle-sized country, but that's explicit whereas the existing financial system the externalities are not are not explicit at all they're kind of uh, they're they, they come into view every 10 or 20 years when there's a massive bailout and then the money goes to a small group of insiders uh, i mean that's the counter argument um so in bitcoin the money goes to a small group of insiders and that's not revealed on the blockchain um you can't talk about bitcoin as a trading commodity or a functional system without including things like tether which is dollars which are not backed by anything apparently they could be backed by something they could be backed by hot air Um, some tethers appear to be backed by loans in tethers where the loan is taken as an asset that the tethers are then credited against like literally creating money from nothing Um, where tethers are pumped in whenever the bitcoin price goes down to make the number go up Um, which is not a sustainable way because system of course but um yeah, it's. I, I find it hard to credit Bitcoin as a system that functionally does anything useful except be a trading commodity with uh, massive externalities. I'm not sure it's reasonably comparable to systems that work and do a useful thing. Yeah. Um, it's it really doesn't have that to it. You know, it's like the Bitcoin argument. What about all the energy used by banks? They never ever give you numbers like how much it costs per transaction for example um in bitcoin you can see the transaction cost and you can see it's like many dollars per transaction and then money for the miners as well if visa 
if Visa cards cost that much, you'd see it on every time you buy something, and you don't because yeah. But they're, they're, surely the cost of the existing financial system are much harder to spot because they're in the form of things like quantitative easing, which uh, worsens income inequality around the world because the benefits of that go to, largely to the asset owners who are already rich, and they everybody else is struggling to catch up or or zero interest rate policy, which again skews things. I mean, these are these are much more difficult to measure the costs, uh, but they're there nevertheless. So if you took the actual substance of that, you'd go, well, how does Bitcoin do for inequality? And the answer is laughably badly. Well, um, that's, a separate, that's a separate question. Yeah, sure. There are a lot of uh, Bitcoin billionaires. You raised it, I didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I... I, I I can see that argument. Um, but, uh, so, but you know, you can do just do the numbers. Like Bitcoin, one zero point one percent of all electricity, seven transactions per second. Literally, the entire rest of civilization and everything it does, nine hundred ninety nine times that, a hell of a lot more than six thousand nine hundred ninety three transactions per second. You know, it's it, it's a it, it's a weird and dumb comparison because. Remember, the electricity isn't doing anything in Bitcoin. It's protecting against the security of attacks by other Bitcoiners on the Bitcoin system. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's only a security measure that makes sense in terms of if you already believe in the security measure. And, you know, the cryptography works. The Bitcoin cryptography is solid, like I say in the book. It's a six-inch steel plate door, you know. Trouble is that any system is not just a blockchain. Bitcoin isn't just a blockchain. It's a whole system. It's a whole system of people who interact with it, who want to get actual dollars for it, because Bitcoin is functionally a dollar derivative. Um, And that system turns out to be a lot less secure, which is why I say it's like a six-inch steel door in a cardboard frame, because no one attacks a cryptographic system head-on. They always look around the edges because they always know there'll be less attention paid around the edges. And in Bitcoin, we see that over and over. That's why it's such a land of scams. Irreversibility turns out to be Bitcoin's primary. It's a great example of saying, no, that's not a bug. It's a feature. It's a bug. It's why Bitcoin scams are so hard to reverse. Why if you get hacked, you have no recourse. It's, you know, (laughs) nothing about this system works except for the bit where some people can make money from it. Well, you've said that the censorship resistant part of it works and it's the, the blockchain is solid and the, and the cryptography is solid, but the uh, people surrounding it are full of scammers. No one could look at cryptocurrency and say that it is anything other than full of scammers. It's like potentially you could find good uses for it. But the thing is, this is actually a problem for Bitcoin. Um, like, it is actually a problem in practice. Like, um, so Bitcoin will never replace the existing financial system. It can't. Um, there are hypothetical ways that it might, but even then it can't. It, <laughs> so it's functionally a dollar derivative. You trade Bitcoins because you want to increase your number of dollars. Um, so then you have to think about what the dollars in Bitcoin are actually used for. There's a lot of trading. Um, Drug dealers don't use Bitcoin so much these days because they've worked out that if you're going to do crimes, then doing them on a permanent immutable ledger is probably a bad idea. 
Right. I'm going to ask you a question that's going to bring us on to Libra because I don't want oh, to yeah, yeah. Uh, run out of time uh, to, to, to not to be able to talk about your, your new book. But I just wanted one last question on, on this uh, subject. So you, you um, during the um, uh, discussions over Facebook's Libra project, a lot of um, um, congressional um, uh, Republican uh, questioners brought up the possibility of payment censorship if, if Libra were subject to Facebook's rules on behavior. But when we've recently seen a number of cases of certain types of content being taken off Twitter, taken off Facebook, uh, allegations of um, you know interference in the US election, as in the previous election, I mean, it, again, isn't Bitcoin uh, a, a potential solution to that? Because you can do, you can put whatever you like on the blockchain. There's no way that anyone can, can stop you uh, printing something into the, the record. So... You could do that, but um, ultimately you have to go to the gateways for real money. And this is why um, the keepers of the financial system are looking much more closely at that because the choke point is obviously the bit where you convert to dollars since the point of Bitcoin is as a dollar derivative. Yeah, so, which is why there's so much focus on on the exchanges, on things like Tether, and we're going to hear probably quite a lot more about that. Yeah. I mean, we can go into um, Libra from this, actually, because now one thing you'll notice from the congressional discussions where David Marcus was asked directly about censorship of payments, where people who've been kicked off Facebook, will they be able to use Libra? He could easily have said at that point, no, this is a separate thing. The social network's a social network. We reserve the right to kick you off, but we'll run the net the money network separately because, you know, you you have to be able to use money to be in society these days. He didn't say that. He had a perfect opportunity to and endless opportunity in the months afterwards, but it was a curious omission there. And Facebook are going very much towards locking stuff down to having – having you have to have a Facebook account to do things like use your new Oculus gaming headset. And if your Facebook account is blocked, suddenly you've got a $300 paperweight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So Facebook is not a central authority that anyone has much trust in. For the social network, you can argue it. You know, we're a social network. We have social rules. If you're antisocial, we kick you off. There are lots of other social networks you could use. You might argue that Facebook is very big and has a very big significant network effect. But, you know, they have a point. And people do form other social networks. But you can't just go out and form your own money, as Facebook discovered. Yeah. So let, let's, I mean, your turn to the, the your new book, Libra Shrugged, um, I guess a, a, a deliberate uh, play on the uh, Ayn Rand, uh, Atlas Shrugged title and the, and the kind of uh, libertarian, anarcho-capitalist uh, ideal of no regulation. Um, but your book makes it pretty clear that Facebook tried to tried to move on into money and, and got stopped by the powers that be. Yes. Um, so, I mean, let's be clear. There's a sort of myth in Bitcoin subculture that as soon as um, the regulators found out about Bitcoin, they'd try to crush it immediately. Like that was like they were saying this out loud really early on. That didn't happen. It didn't happen because what regulators, you know, we live in capitalist countries, right? US, UK, Europe, these are all capitalist countries. They love it when people go into business. They love it when people do stuff with money. They love it when people go out and make a bundle. So they want to encourage that. But they also know that if there's money, then it's going to be other people's money, and those other people are going to have very strong ideas about how you handle money and how you comport yourself, and that's why we have regulation. Um, and you should definitely argue 
how much regulation or how little and so on, that's very important that people push back on bad regulation, but there's going to be something. So what the regulators want is to make sure that a big new player knows what they're doing and understands what they're doing. And it really looks like Facebook had no idea what they were doing. You know, and yeah, you also- describe it as a, a mixture of arrogance and incompetence. Uh, yes, you know, it's a surprising, uh, actually, uh, incompetence given the the size of Facebook and the their power. They had every chance. Yeah, you know, um, and it's not like they couldn't have tapped all the high quality economists and people they wanted, but they got the Bitcoin economist in to design it for them. <laughs> and yes. Yeah, you're talking about David Marcus. Um, Kristen Catalini was the economist. He designed yeah. the whole Libra Reserve plan. Yeah. If you look at it, it looks very like a it looks very like a crypto scheme. It looks like someone's ICO white paper. You know, yeah. we will start a magic money for bananas or dentistry, and um, we will then revolutionise the economy based on this, and it will have a market cap of two trillion dollars, and it'll be awesome. Yeah. So it turns out that if you if you're a a um, make if you say this in an ICO white paper, regulators will nod and smile and say, "Yeah, that's fine. Don't break any laws." If you're Facebook, you've got two billion users, and you appear to mean this seriously, then they go, "What the on earth?" And they take you very seriously, and they really want to know you know your stuff. And Facebook just completely flubbed it. Yes. I mean, you you pointed out, uh, you know, kind of very, uh, um, you know, notable that when um, you you quoted Mark Zuckerberg in his, you know, twenty twenty State of the Union address to Facebook employees and the broader world that you know he talked about payments, but he didn't mention Libra once. He just talked about expanding the uh, payment capabilities of, of WhatsApp. So does yeah. that mean we're we're going to end up in future with a a kind a, a, you know a number of I don't know if this is the right term, you know, walled garden, social network-based payment services. So there'll be a Facebook one, a Google one, maybe an Apple one, an Amazon one, an Alipay or WeChat Pay one if you're in China or, you know, or parts of Asia. Now, how is this all going to evolve? Uh, that's, uh, a really, yeah, we- that's a really good question. Um, so I think that, as I say in the book, I'm pretty sure that Facebook are going to release something called Libra at some point. It won't be the original plan. That's dead. There's no way they would be allowed to do anything like that. And the main reason for that is because the Libra Reserve would be on the order of a trillion dollars, bigger than any country's sovereign wealth fund, for example. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to have sloshing around in the markets looking for a home. You know, Um, and it's way too reminiscent of 2008. That's the real fear regulators have. They, yes, desperate- they, don't, they, don't, they don't want another version of money market funds that are kind of pretending to be banks but are not banks and are not uh, regulated appropriately. And Facebook clearly was trying to do something along those lines. Uh, I, I can't overstate how much regulators fear 2008 happening again. Um, yeah. They And Facebook came up with a scheme that was more or less what had happened in 2008, and they didn't realize it. They didn't do the reading. And this is another thing that this is the very Silicon Valley aspect where people have this idea very much in Silicon Valley that they are so smart they don't need to do the reading and that they can just reason it all out from first principles. You can get some amazing stuff that way, but um, you can also really, really mess it up when it turns out that domain knowledge is important. You know, yeah. 
And when it comes to banking and payments, you run into all kinds of national peculiarities, different legal systems. You know, it's a complex network of uh, markets and countries, and and, uh, it's not something that people touch uh, lightly. It's amazing because David Marcus was literally a payments guy. You know, he's always he's been he's been in payments for decades. Um, he and he ran PayPal. He knows personally that you have when you're dealing in hundreds of countries, they all have peculiarities. They all have regulations that are different. They all have a lot of rules, and it's complicated. And nothing substitutes for doing the reading. It's like he forgot it. I don't yeah. understand because you know. I don't think I emphasize this enough in the book. David Marcus has always been very, very consistent. Um, he's like a really, basically, if he says things, he means them. This is not reading well, his kind mind. of nice to have in the in the modern day world, but uh, yeah. It, observing this is just observing his behavior and predicting past behavior to predict future behavior. If David Marcus says something, I would assume he means it. So, you know, he he's like not out to deceive people. He was very sincerely presenting this project he deeply believed in. Um, so, yeah, it's how could he not do the reading? I don't understand what happened there. So you think Facebook will revisit this, but on a, on a much less ambitious scale at some point, and they'll have to try and grow it uh, more organically? I think that they will do something like this. Um, they're doing Facebook Pay, which is not really a payments thing. And they've had that actually for years. It was called Messenger Pay or Messenger Payments, but they've expanded it across the company, which where Facebook does the bit where they get the bring the customers to the network and they have PayPal or banks doing the back end bit or credit card companies. Um, so they do the hard stuff with Know Your Customer and so on. Um <laughs> Let me ask you that point, David, about um, central bank digital currencies, because having stopped Libra, governments and central banks around the world have clearly accelerated their plans to introduce their own or new versions of their own uh, national money in the form of a digital currency, which may be directly distributed from central banks to the public or distributed through some intermediaries. Uh, People call this CBDC, central bank digital currency. Uh, From from a reading of your book, it looks like you're pretty sceptical about this uh, taking off. So... The main problem I keep seeing is that there isn't a lot of use case. Unless you have a use case, no one's going to be very into it. So I fully appreciate that central banks have to have researchers who go off on a lot of blue sky thinking because they have to anticipate possible shocks. Their whole job is stability. So they have to anticipate what might happen in the future. What if someone comes up with a really weird, dumb idea and it becomes hugely popular? How would this affect things? That sort of question. So they looked at Libra and did that, and they went, because, you know, um, it would crash and burn. But what if what if they did their own one? Is it time to have a central bank token? I mean, I don't think the actual issue – I didn't get into this deeply in the book because I was trying to focus on consumers, Libra, and people interested in Facebook. But I think the key point about central bank digital currencies is it's much more about the politics of who gets to do the certain jobs in banking. It's more about between commercial banks and central banks about who issues the money, most of which is issued by commercial banks. In fact, um, currency issuance by central banks is a minor part. And what would happen if everybody flocked from commercial banks to central banks and commercial banks lost their power to do as many things, Um, which was the same worry with Libra, but at least with central banks, they're public institutions and people expect them to comport themselves in a certain way. 
you know, they're not under direct democratic control. They have to maintain independence because that's the point. But, you know, if the economy catches fire and everything goes south and central banks will have a number of uh, pressing questions and expectations upon them. But they're, they're public institutions. They act like public institutions. You know. So, so I mean, if you if you could offer them some advice, what as a you know technologist, what do you think they should be doing? Because I noticed in your book you said that you think some governments and central banks suffer from what you call a big data fallacy. That if they, you know, the the idea that if they could only collect more uh, individual transaction data from all of us, they'd be able to you know better see what's going on in the economy and somehow fix things. But you're you're skeptical that that's a good idea to to pursue. I mean, that's a general advice for business thing, um, where. Whenever someone asks for more data, it's because they think that they can use it to um, do a particular thing that they know they have to do, but they need, they need it for political support. Sometimes you might discover new and interesting patterns in the data, but mostly it's what I say. Um, and if you build a system that has a complete panopticon of all transactions, that will um, people who use the system will um, know that, and their behavior may be affected by this level of observation. It's all a tricky one at all levels is what I'm saying. I think the main advice on CBDCs is come up with your payment use case where this actually makes payments work better. Make sure you have a good reason that is a consumer-focused reason to do a retail CBDC. Then build the system from there. Like I really liked the white paper for the Bermuda Sand Dollar. I recommend people read it because it's very much focused on the actual problem, how to get payments out to outer islands of Bermuda, you know, where the commercial banks won't go because there isn't much of a living there, but, you know, people still need to use money. So in that particular case, the central bank had to step in because... And that was a similar similar case, I think, was made by the um, uh, the Chinese central bank a couple of weeks ago that they, you know, they needed their digital currency to be able to be used you know, when people were offline and in remote parts of the country, they, did, they needed to make sure it, it worked in those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things going with DCEP. Um, it's, they're worried about Tenpay and Alipay getting too big as private companies. They're worried about the hegemony of the US dollar. They're all sorts of things. Um, in the most recent large-scale trial, I believe that consumers weren't all that thrilled by DCEP. They went, well, it's nice, but I'm mostly using it because they gave us sort of a digital red envelope of money to use. And it didn't do anything that the other systems didn't do. Yeah, I'm, The one thing it does do is DCEP will be interchangeable between providers. You know, it won't have that sort of siloed picture that you painted before. We have each all of these little private monies. I mean, you know, Amazon money on Amazon is already a pain in the backside. You know, we have Amazon gift certificate dollars. When I had some trapped on Amazon US that I couldn't use for anything for about a year, and it was it was really yeah. annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Separate individual. We have general currencies for a reason. You know, because network effect is good. It's important. Yeah. David, fascinating chat. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to, to speak to, to me and uh, to join the podcast. Um, I can thoroughly recommend both your books. I found them really, really great reads. Uh, what, what, I'm sure you're taking a well-deserved uh, break. What, what's, what's the next book going to be on? So I'm not taking any sort of break because now I'm in marketing mode. <laughs> <laughs> 
my big thing at the moment is that people lo- people who read the book love it, so I know I've got a good book. Now I've just got to get all the people who read the first one to let them know I've got a new one out. Um, we're writing, uh, uh, we're having this talk during the election count, so you know the news media pa- yeah. is a bit busy at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe next week, but um, right. so um, possibly the next one. I have a half written book of really hilarious bad ICOs which I need to finish writing. Totally much more like the first book. Um, the first book had a certain atmosphere of hilarious slapstick failures by dumb crooks, and this is a lot of that. Right, right. That's why cryptocurrency certainly continues to generate lots of uh, great content for all of us. So uh... I'm, I'm very big. I'm a major holder of comedy gold. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, David. Take care. Thank all you so much. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so on Patreon or via cryptocurrency. Details of how to do so are on the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com.